this year, we talked to author Gerald Nachman about his fine book right here on our stage tonight, Ed Sullivan's America. We asked him back to discuss a previous book, Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s, and we enjoyed that too. Both segments are available on our archives at radioparallax.com. We asked Mr. Nachman if he'd like to talk about still another book of his we enjoyed immensely, and he agreed to do this, noting he's especially fond of this particular effort. The book is Raised on Radio, and we've profited handsomely from having read it, for it led us to some of our most favorite segments, like our chats with Ray Bradbury, Norman Corwin, and Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. Said Dennis Drabell of the Washington Post Book World about Raised on Radio, During its palmy days, radio was one of the glories of American entertainment. Nachman's goal is to refurbish that glory, and he achieves it with evocations of shows, their stars, and even their sponsors. I doubt I've ever read a book with a higher count of sparkling anecdotes per chapter. Gerald Nachman has covered theater, movies, cabaret, and television for newspapers and magazines, in addition to his books, and we're pleased to have him visit us a third time and say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Gerald Nachman. Thanks very much, Doug. Wonderful introduction, and I forgot about that great quote from the uh, Washington Post. <laughs> yeah, we took it off the back of the back of the book, and it's a, it's a good one, and, and you certainly had an, a number of them there. I like to start at the end of Raised on Radio and work backwards. You quoted the legendary Norman Corwin as noting 30 years ago that radio dramas could be revived within a week. Corwin considered the medium very much alive, just existing in a kind of coma. Uh, I saw a presentation in the style of old-time radio in L.A. last year, and it was great. And considering how cheaply one can produce a radio drama, don't you agree that uh, this is the kind of thing that maybe is overdue for a revival on university campuses and even high schools? Long overdue. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 40 years overdue, maybe 50 <laughs> years. Corwin said, it's so true, you could, you, could do, you could reproduce current version of old radio in a few weeks. So easy to do. You need a mic, a script, a few actors, and some sound effects, of course. Maybe a little music, but it's, you know, compared to every other medium, which is so uh, geared up with bells and whistles that it can hardly, uh, you know, tell a story, old radio would could come back and be new radio, and it would be wonderful. And, and there is some of it, I, I'm told anyway, still exists in Britain. And we did have a, a, a an hour here on KDVS where someone would do that uh, up until recently, and I'm hoping that uh, before this, uh, this discussion's up, we'll get people revived to do that again. Yeah, that would be great. Well, radio dominated American life from the late 20s to the late 50s in a way that's maybe sometimes hard to imagine now. Can you talk about just how popular some of these shows were? Well, Amos and Andy was the first big mega hit, I guess. That was in the late 20s, started during the Depression, and because it was about two black guys who'd come north to Chicago from the south and were struggling to make it uh, with their... Uh, Fresh Air Taxi Cab Company, which, which didn't have a top, <laughs> hence the name, I guess. And uh, people identify with them because they were they were uh, you know they weren't they weren't uh, destitute, but they were struggling to make a living. And a lot of Americans identify with them uh, because uh, during the struggles. And it was kind of a, in the early in the early Amos and Andy days, it was uh, kind of a quasi soap opera. It was on every night for 15 minutes, and uh, people would stop whatever they were doing, and department stores would pipe in the shows. It was comedy, but it was also kind of a continuing story that would go on from week to week. So they were the first big hits in radio. Still remembered, sometimes it's remembered incorrectly as being racist, but you know, I mounted big defense in my book about how it was not racist whatever. It was just funny and warm characters. 
Well, I, I, I wanted to quote you on that because, uh, you know, I noted that Amos and Andy was loved by blacks and whites alike. Uh, I mean, people like George Kingfish Stevens, just totally memorable characters. Um, you said in the book, for white Americans, Amos and Andy didn't deepen the stereotype, which was the usual claim. It did quite the opposite. The show was a first peak on TV at a bustling black community. Blacks were depicted as judges, executives, doctors, and businessmen. The title characters were only part of a larger, thriving, and admirable society. And I just, I just, I so uh, agree with you on that. As a boy watching TV, the only time I saw black doctors or lawyers was on Amos and Andy. Exactly. Uh, you know, as I say also I, in the book when I was growing up, the only African-Americans you would encounter would be, you know, maids and uh, railway porters and uh, athletes. And, uh, you know, they weren't part of middle-class society the way white, uh, the way our, our lives were. But there was a thriving middle-class black community, and that was pretty much depicted on Amos and Andy. And you know, if listeners haven't heard much old-time radio, and I hope that this is one show people will will go back and revisit. Uh, I think of like Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton on the Honeymooners being such classics. But that's a very good comparison. Those shows are still funny, and I listen to them all the time. They are they were very well written. A lot of the stuff from that era doesn't really hold up. The comedy, especially, doesn't always hold up. But uh, boy, Amos and Andy does. Which, which shows did you enjoy as a boy, and which ones are, are enjoy the most still? One of my favorites has sort of been forgotten. It's not very well known anymore, except to people who remember old radio. It's called The Great Gildersleeve, and it was about a, uh, a bachelor father. He was the uh, taking care of his niece and nephew, and, uh, and he was kind of a lovable, blustering uh, guy in middle age and trying to romance the neighbor lady and it just it was written with a lot of reality to it it was funny it was very comedy he was a very funny character it's hard to explain any comedy but especially hard to explain to greg gillersley but i love that show and again uh, the writing holds up yeah and and a lot of the characters on there were, were very funny the shows that really hold up are uh, jack benny Burnson allen and uh, charlie mccarthy are the, the three that i think hold up the best and the greg gillersley Let's talk about Jack Benny. He was huge on radio and did well on TV uh, as well over three decades, which is just incredible in show business. Um, his show was famous for building comedy into the people that were on the show, so it wasn't joke, 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 but humor that evolved from the characters with exactly. Phil Harris being a, a part of your Rochester being the wise guy and Benny, Benny being a cheapskate, etc. Well, yeah. The, the Benny show was all character-driven, and somehow the uh, the writers developed Benny into that character and surrounded him with all these kind of eccentric guys. Uh, contemporary version might be Seinfeld, in a way, because Jerry Seinfeld's kind of the normal one, and Benny was kind of the normal one, although he had a lot of, you know, funny quirks and uh, expressions, and, and, and he was a funny guy, but he had he was surrounded by strange, <laughs> eccentric characters. Not strange, but... Right, right. Yeah, Dennis Day, John Wilson, and and was really a very um, aggressive creatively because every week the show would be about the show itself. Right. So that's kind of surreal in a certain way. And I remember when I was listening to it, I said, gee, that's strange. And, and yet it was funny. That's the bottom line. It, it was very funny. It was about, you know, ostensibly putting the show together. And there would be some of their own adventures thrown in along, along the way. Um, but it was very, very different, unique kind of a show. Yeah, I think that uh, what comes to mind, too, in my mind, Larry Sanders basically redid the whole Jack Benny thing and, and did it did Yeah, it quite that's well. a better example. I never saw I only saw one or two of those, and uh, Gary Shandling probably adopted that, that idea, which was, which was pretty clever. Well, we have a clip here from Jack Benny I'd, I'd like to play. 
Well, we finally got to the station, babe. Let's go in. Train now leaving on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Cucamonga. Come on, babe. Gee, I'm ashamed to go on the train the way I look. Fixing that tire ruined my outfit. Now, let's see. Now, here's the ticket window. Oh, pardon me. Are you the ticket clerk here? Yes. <laughs> I used to be at Pasadena, but they moved me on account of the freeway. <laughs> That's very funny. Thank you. Attention, please. He stole that joke from me. <laughs> now, look, clerk. Now, let's not have any trouble here. I want a ticket to New York. Return trip? No, one way. Good. Now, cut that out. I'm coming back by plane. Well, yeah, here we got Mel Blanc, Frank Nelson doing their thing. Be- Benny doesn't have to get the laugh, but uh, I know that other, other actors loved him for that. And, and again, it's just it's such a great formula. Benny got laughs, but they were kind of... A, he was a, react- a reactive comic. You know, he got laughs, his reactions... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he was so, you know, outraged and he was so put upon, you know, he was really the first Rodney Dangerfield. He didn't get any respect <laughs> for anybody, including his, uh, his, his, uh, his valet or, uh, houseman or whatever they were called, Rochester, who right. put him down. And that was a great reversal because, you know, you hear, uh, Rochester was his black servant and he was always, he, he was putting Benny down. <laughs> You know, I just we can't even talk about Jack Benny without me chuckling because he was he was so funny. But yeah, yeah, Dennis Day he was a kind of naive guy, but he was always getting Benny's goat, and that was the whole. Everybody, I guess, a lot of comedians. That's the bottom line: is that they are the butt of the joke, really. Even Gleason, who was a much more, you know, physical, active presence, he was always the the butt of all the jokes. Well, Benny, Benny had his timing was famous. His writing team was kind of famous too, and I gather you you actually spoke with some of them. I did. I spoke to uh, to uh, George Balzer, who was, uh, I think, the last remaining original Benny Ryder, and uh, he was a great old guy and uh, gave me some good stories. And I tried to talk in the book to as many writers as I could uh, of comedy shows, especially because the writers are the ones who have the memories and all the stories, and they don't have an image to protect or any of that. So they really, and they were they were in the guts of the show. They were. They did create the show, so they had the, they had the best story. So, I talked to many writers. They writer for the Fred Allen Show, writer for uh, Burns and Allen, for the aforementioned Great Gildersleeve Show, and Fibber McGee, and uh, a lot of them were still around when I wrote the book about ten years ago. And it was it was just a joy to to meet them, and they were so delighted to be remembered and to be able to you know tell me their stories. I guess Balzer told you, or someone told you, that when Benny would get together with the writers, there were four writers, and everybody got a vote. Benny had one vote, just like everybody else. Yeah, that's a great thing you picked up on, yes. And, and his writers, uh, Benny really respected his writers, unlike a guy like Red Skelton, who, who treated them miserably. Right. And, uh, and thought, that you thought of them just hired hands. But uh, Benny was, very, you know, had, it was a democracy in a way. Although, of course, Benny could overrule anyone and would if he felt... <laughs> felt strongly enough about it, but he he tried. He really respected his writers, and and uh, and, uh, and every so often he would want to do a joke that they didn't want to do. And I remember there's a line Benny said. He said, "Well, if we if if if, I, if we can't even do the jokes that I want to do, then 
why am I doing the show? <laughs> so he would, you know, overrule them on occasion, but, uh, but, but he was very good to his writers, and that's why, and that's why he paid them well, and that's why he kept them for, you know, 20, 30 years. We're speaking with author Gerald Nachman about his book, Raised on Radio. Um, you mentioned Fred Allen a moment ago. Uh, back in the 30s and 40s, he was definitely a rival to Jack Benny in, in popularity and all. He's not as well-known today because he didn't make the transition to TV. Can you tell us a bit about Fred Allen? Yeah, well, Fred Allen was a satirist, and his comedy, just by nature, because it's topical, it's not re- as well-remembered, but he was a, in, 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 a, in an era when there wasn't a lot of satire on radio or even in movies, uh, he was like the leading light, and he was a, a very sardonic guy, and he, was, he would make fun of American, what was in the headlines and all that. He's kind of the John Stewart of his day, I guess, in a way. He, he really had a lot to say about American manners and mores and what was going on in the country, and uh, it was all kind of gentle, but, uh, but, he, but, he, but for that time, for the 30s and 40s, he, he was really a, a presence, and uh, his shows were interesting because they changed. It was kind of like a combination of uh, kind of vaudeville and uh, satires, an unusual mix. And he, he made it work, and he had a continuing feature that's kind of remembered, if anything's remembered about him today, called Alan's Alley, where he would have these kind of ethnic stereotypes. He had an Irishman and a Jewish a Jewish woman, and, uh, and all the, his most famous creation was Senator Claghorn, which was a kind of the... <laughs> The, the blustery southern uh, politician. He would make fun of character types, but not not in a nasty way. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. We actually have a clip here from from Fred Allen going up into Allen's Alley, where he chats with Senator Claghorn. Ah, it's so quiet and restful here in Allen's Alley, Portland. But I can put a stop to that just by knocking on the senator's door. Somebody, I say, somebody knock. <laughs> Yes, I... Uh, Claghorn's the name, Senator Claghorn. I know is. that. I... I'm from the South, way down South. Every week... Where I come from, when we say cotton, we don't mean no movie actor. Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Look, don't butt in, son. Well, Stop I... blabbing. I'm not trying to... Keep interrupting. Try listening. Listening well, to me. If I could only get a word. Don't give me no Gettysburg address, son. And, and, and by the way, that I just love the fact that Claghorn was the inspiration from my favorite Warner Brothers cartoon character, Foghorn Leghorn. I mean, just, I just great right. stuff. It was, yeah. They kind of stole it. The, vo- the voice wasn't done by the same guy, I don't think, by that time. I think that was the inimitable Mel Blanc, as usual, who we should, oh, we Mel should Blank plug again. Uh-huh. <laughs> the guy did everything. Well, well, Senator Claghorn became kind of a, uh, kind of a generic name for, uh, for, for, for pompous politicians. <laughs> It should be revived. It's a great name. <laughs> you know what a claghorn was? Uh, no. It's actually, a, it was a horn on a car, early cars. It went, ooh-ah, ooh-ah, ooh-ah. <laughs> that makes it even funnier. I didn't know. Yeah, it was a claghorn, yeah. <laughs> well, um, you mentioned the three, the three great shows, uh, Benny, um, Charlie McCarthy, and, and George Burns. George Burns is still a household name, given how long he lived. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was with his wife, Gracie Allen, that they were so huge on radio and, and, and later television. And, and Gracie was, was the funny one. Well, yeah, it started out the other way. Burns started out, when they started out their act, he was the, he was the funny one, and she was you know, feeding him straight lines. And then he realized that she was getting all the laughs because <laughs> of her timing, because of her kind of high-pitched voice and her kind of, a, kind, of a, um, kind of clueless manner, although it was a very interesting. And then he, she was getting the laughs, so he decided to, to, to turn it around. She was a 
just a great comedian. He, he never treated her as stupid, because yeah. even though her stuff was kind of uh, inside-out logic, he called it, because it made sense, even though it didn't make sense. <laughs> and uh, he was very affectionate toward her, never put her down, never made fun of her, never seemed exasperated exactly. He would kind of, on TV, he would just kind of look out at the audience, stare out at the audience like, can you believe what she said? <laughs> Again, it was very cleverly written stuff, and her 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 observations. I can't think of any now. There's some in the book were were right on the money, even though they were kind of inside out logic. Well, let's run a clip. I remember when you played in San Francisco. My mother took me to see you. That's when I first fell in love with you. You did? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the thrilling moment when that tall, handsome man walked out on the stage <laughs> and introduced you. <laughs> Yeah, Benny Fields was a good-looking MC. Yes, and, and then, then you made your entrance, and I said, Mother, there's the man I'm going to marry. Hmm. Something went boom in my head, and it spun around. Really? Yeah, my mother hit me with her purse. <laughs> she never cared for me, did Oh, she? but nothing could stop me. I followed you clear across the country. Every performance, you'd be sitting in the front row. I got so, I sang right to you. The audience must have known we were in love. What makes you think so? Well, the minute you started to sing, they'd walk out and leave us alone. <laughs> Still charming after all these years. <laughs> You're right. Some old-time radio programs were, were very popular, but we talked about that they haven't aged too well. I, I think of The Shadow, which is so famous for that wonderful introduction, but uh, listening to it, the scripts were pretty weak, and it really could only work on radio. As I remember, them, they were pretty similar week to week. They would, some guy would get cornered, and then he would hear the voice of the shadow cackling, uh, and he would uh, he would lose it, and uh, that was the end of the show. So it wasn't very interesting. A lot of the shows that make a point in the book were 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 really remembered and famous later for their great openings. Radio has just amazingly clever and memorable openings, like the like the squeaking door and Inner Sanctum. And those shows do hold up. Dragnet, of course, the Gunsmoke's opening, yeah. and the Lone Ranger had the, had had probably the most famous opening in all of radio. Well, we 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 have to jump in at this point because I've got that one ready to go, and I and I agree. I don't know if there's ever a better opening to any program ever. No. Let's cue that up. horse for the speed of light, the cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger.
With his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. The stories of his strength and courage, his daring and resourcefulness have come down to us through the generations. And nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse, Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver. There's murder on the trail ahead. Oh, Silver! Hoy! You still hear uh, references to that now and then in movies and so on. You know, they run the William Tell Overture and kind of a for some reason it will harken back to the to, to the Lone Ranger. Well, I think you mentioned in the book, I don't know how anybody can hear, hear the William Tell Overture now and not think of the Lone Ranger. Yeah, it's fun to just listen to it as a as a as a as a uh, as an overture <laughs> and as a, the William Tell Suite, I guess it's called, the rest of it. And uh, because you you know, it's it's just fun as an exercise to see if you can just try to listen to it as pure music, and you know it's it's pretty hard to without the <laughs> without the voice of Fred Boy coming into your head. Right, and you want a guy on a horse. The to the great exactly, horse exactly. Yeah. Well, westerns were were very popular on radio, and I guess the Lone Ranger uh, pretty much made the Mutual Radio Network. It was such a smash right from the start. Yeah, Detroit from Detroit, and that and the same guys that made the Lone Ranger, uh, uh, George George Trendle, George W. Trendle. I still remember the credits. Uh, and Fran Stryker created the Lone Ranger, then they created Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and then the Green Hornet. Right. They all came out of Detroit, and they all came out of the same, uh, the same creative minds. And, and they do all sound remarkably similar when you listen to them. I guess they are, yeah, <laughs> right. But they all had great openings. I still remember the Green Hornet. Sure. The, the buzzing Green Hornet and uh, the wind and the, the frozen tundra <laughs> for Sergeant Preston and King. He was such a straight arrow, the Lone Ranger and those characters, even with oh, even with Tonto, yeah. that you know they were pretty one dimensional always, but but fun. Yeah, those those shows are they're they're better than The Shadow. They are kind of similar in a way, but it was a, a brilliant creation of uh, having a a good guy in a black mask. I mean, what a great idea that is. I don't think that's ever done in literature that I know of. Right. Maybe Zorro, I don't know, but uh, and having him the good guy, and he's kind of a Robin Hood character, and. Uh, and he's a mystery man, and he's got uh, an Indian companion. Right. Indians were always the right. bad guys right. in, in, in Western. So there's a lot of uh, a unique characteristics that really make it interesting. And the silver bullet, you know, it, it was just a great creation. And I, I think anyone who's old enough to remember it still cracks up at the line, you know, who was that masked man? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. And it, it's, those guys really knew what they were doing. That concludes part one of our interview with Gerald Nachman. Part two will, of course, be on next week's program. Mr. McMillan, for our, uh, our bumper music, let's go out with Flight of the Bumblebee, which, uh, which was used as the theme for The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. We've got plenty more. He hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies that even the G-men cannot reach. The Green Hornet. Yeah.